1 Samuel 19. I'm reading verses 18 through 24. So David fled and escaped and went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed in Nioth. Now it was told Saul, saying, Take note, David is at Nioth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the group of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as leader over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. And when Saul was told, he sent other messengers, and they prophesied likewise. Then Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they prophesied also. Then he also went to Ramah and came to the great well that is at Seku. So he asked and said, Where are Samuel and David? And someone said, Indeed, they are at Nioth in Ramah. So he went there to Nioth in Ramah. Then the Spirit of God was upon him also, and he went on and prophesied until he came to Nioth in Ramah. And he also stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in like manner and laid down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore they say, Is Saul also among the prophets? Father, we thank you for this, your word. It is our desire to submit our hearts to it, to glory in it, and uh, to be drawn into a closer relationship to you as a result of having heard it. May your spirit quicken the scriptures to our hearts by faith. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. When I was in 10th grade, my father was having devotions out in Ethiopia. And uh, we had gotten up to the passage in Numbers where the Israelites were grumbling over having to eat manna day after day. And uh, they wanted to go back to Egypt so that they could eat the leeks and the garlics and the cucumbers and all of the other delicious food. And I was, as a kid, just shaking my head and thinking, how in the world could they complain after all of the incredible things that God has done for them, the miracles day after day? And I expressed my amazement at uh, their hard-heartedness to my dad. And my dad said, well, Phil, is that any different than your complaining yesterday about having to eat oatmeal every morning? Ooh. <laughs> uh, he blew my cover. And I realized all of a sudden my hypocrisy because I could see very, very clearly the irrationality of their sin, you know, and here they were having to eat manna three times a day every day for years, and I could not see the irrationality of my own sin. Uh, how many here have ever experienced blindness to your own sin? <laughs> and even the ones who didn't raise their hands probably said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we know exactly what's going on there. We tend to see other people's sins a whole lot more clearly than we do our own. And this blindness to our own sin is in part what enables us to overlook or think, you know, what we're doing is not that bad, and other people to stand back and shake their heads and wonder, what is wrong with Phil Kaiser? <laughs> he doesn't seem to get it. We may shake our heads at Saul's attempted murder of David, and I'm sure that David shook his head at it as well because it really didn't make sense. David has been totally loyal. Uh, he has been totally dependable for, for Saul. 
He has not been on the tack against Saul, and this seems totally crazy. But you know what? Much as he might shake his head at Saul, David did exactly the same thing in 2 Samuel when he commits adultery with uh, his uh, uh, very loyal uh, friend's wife, and then he tries to uh, kill Uriah. So Saul has attempted murder. David actually succeeded in that murder. Apparently, he became totally blinded to that. It took this prophet uh, uh, almost like a, a trick to make David's eyes be opened up to his sin. Now, from hindsight, we look at the sins of Saul and David, and we say, wow, that was crazy. We're shocked that they would do that because there are such big sins in our culture. Now, in that day, I think both David and Saul had killed so many people, they couldn't count the number of people that they had killed. And for the sake of the kingdom, you know, one more death may not have seemed like such a big deal for them. So if you think that you could never do what Saul or what David did, you do not yet understand the depth of sin, the depth of the deception, self-deception that we can have. You don't understand your heart. You do not understand what Paul speaks about when he speaks of the mystery of iniquity. It is a mystery. It's a puzzling thing. All sin is irrational. It's irrational, first of all, because you're choosing to do something that is self-destructive. You're choosing to believe our flesh over the wisdom of God. We're choosing to believe something is safe when God says it is dangerous. Every single time we sin, we are losing something far greater than we are gaining. It's irrational. It doesn't make any sense. And yet we do it all the time. Secondly, it's irrational because of the heart's ability to engage in self-deception. We engage in a sin that God clearly calls a sin, and yet somehow we have this ability to convince ourselves, you know, it's really not that bad of a sin, it's not that big of a deal, or even maybe that it's not a sin at all. Now, some of us can do it without any theology. Some of us are very skilled at bringing this scripture and that scripture to defend our sin and, and to go through this rationalization. If any of you are parents, I think you've probably experienced this. You've been trying to point out sin in your kids' lives, and it's like there's a veil there. They just can't see it. They cannot understand the sin that they're going through. I run across this all the time in my counseling. And so there's a mystery when it comes to recognizing sin. This is why we need the supernatural illumination of the Holy Spirit. He has to open our eyes to understand the depths of sin in our hearts. There is also a mystery when it comes to people failing to care about the fallout. People use drugs and they don't care that their mind is going to be fried and they're going to lose their jobs and ruin their finances. You look at some of the sins that people engage in and it doesn't make sense at all. Why would Satan continue to fight against God? Does he think he can win? I mean, it's just irrational. But you know, it was utterly irrational that Adam and Eve would choose to do that first sin that they, that they engaged in. It's totally irrational. They had thousands of trees that were good, probably a wide variety of trees that they could eat from. But no, that first day, they've got to go up to the one tree that God says no to. And they're looking, wow, that tree just looks so good. Why is it we can't eat from that one tree? And that one bite lost them everything. 
God said, and he warned them about it. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So they died spiritually. They were separated from God. They're alienated from each other. Uh, they were kicked out of the garden. In fact, they flung this whole world into the groaning and the agony that it has been in ever since that time. That first sin was irrational because it did not take seriously the consequences of sin. In the middle of January, I sent out a one-page document that a friend of mine wrote. He was a pastor, and he lost his ministry, his reputation. He lost everything because of one sexual, adulterous uh, engagement that he went to. Just one. And he wrote 23 reasons why sexual sin is stupid, stupid, absolutely stupid. And those are very compelling reasons. And some of you have actually said, boy, thank you for those, because those are like a hedge. They help me to realize I need to keep uh, myself pure before the Lord. But you know what? There are people who could read those 23 reasons, realize that the outcome of their decisions could be very bad, and they'll still go ahead and uh, commit the sin anyway. It's an amazing thing what our hearts are capable of doing. Why would a man walk away from a wonderful wife, wonderful children, and choose to get married to a lesser woman? But they do it all the time. Why would a politician who has a good reputation perjure himself in order to look good, and then he gets caught, he loses everything, and yet they do it? Sin is irrational. There's so many ways in which we find ourselves failing to take seriously the consequences of sin. And so I hope as we go through this passage, God will use this passage to make you hate your sin all the more, to cling to God's mercy all the more. I hope it'll make you uh, fear sin, like Jude says that we should fear sin, and to say to the Lord, oh Lord, keep me from the stupidity of sin. Please guard my heart. I know you can keep me from stumbling, but I will stumble if you don't keep me. I need your grace every single day. I cling to you. Now, let's take a look, first of all, at the uh, warning signs and the sirens that were going off that should have made Saul just back off, back away from this. God was so graciously giving Saul an opportunity to repent. And let's start at verse 18. So David fled and escaped and went to Samuel at Ramah. Now, we'll just stop there for a moment. God providentially has David run to Ramah, and uh, this was about three miles away. It's a downhill run there. But if Saul thought about it, this should have been a reminder, the first reminder that he's fighting against God because it was at Ramah that Samuel first gave to him the kingdom. And... In chapter, that was chapter 8, I believe. And in chapter 15, when Samuel says, God has stripped the kingdom away from you, he should have stepped down at that point. Uh, then it says that Samuel went to Ramah and he no longer saw the faith, face uh, of Saul. So David going to Ramah should have been a reminder. Oh, yeah, that's Samuel, that's Ramah. Uh, I'm not the one who should be the legitimate heir to this throne. It really should be David. And David's going before Ramah to stand before Samuel just like Saul stood before Samuel before. And so this could have been, this is no coincidence, this could have been a switch that would have switched on repentance, but instead it's a switch that switched on fear. That, that fear made him do irrational things. Then verse 18 says that Samuel took David to Nioth. Now, Nioth was a maze of buildings in Ramah where the school of the prophets was located. Now, keep in mind, Saul is a professing believer. 
Okay? In fact, I think the evidence favors the fact that he was a genuine believer. And there's a lot of debate on this, but you look at the beginning of his ministry and it says God gave him a new heart. Those are words of regeneration. At the end of his ministry, it says that Samuel came up and Samuel said, you will be with me to me. You will be with me today. Well, Samuel was not in hell. Samuel was in the paradise portion of Sheol. And uh, so that's another indication. Before, we gave a number of different indications that Saul probably was a true believer. I know there's a, a lot of debate about that. But everyone agrees that Saul was at least a professing believer. It's not like he's thrown the scriptures out. He goes to church. He reads the Bible. You know, he prays. In the next chapter, he's going to be keeping a holy festival. And he keeps that festival just the way God says he should keep that festival. So there's a culture of Christianity that he is engaging in. But here's the thing. Here's the question. Does it make any sense for a professing believer to fight against, try to kill David, God's anointed, or to try to go after Samuel, who's written some of the scriptures, or to ignore the prophecies of a whole school of prophets. To me, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. By the end of this chapter, Saul will have ignored the prophecies of that entire school of prophets. It's irrational, irrational. And yet, we do it all the time. We do it all the time. We sin against the God who loved us, who sent His Son to die for us by ignoring His prophecies. The Scriptures contain all of the prophecies God wants. In fact, 1 Peter says it is a more sure word of prophecy. It's a more sure word of prophecy. And so basically when we sin, our behavior is saying, I don't care that God says I may not eat from the fruit of the tree of life. I'm going to eat anyway because I want it. I don't care that I'm going to lose all of these things in my life. I'm going to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, while those first two warnings were merely providential hints that might have stirred up his thinking, these next three reminders are very overt. They're very obvious. Saul sends three groups of messengers to kill David, probably to kill Samuel as well. And so let's read verses 20 through 21. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the group of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as leader over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. And when Saul was told, he sent other messengers, and they prophesied likewise. Then Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they prophesied also. God is forcing those three groups of messengers to give God's perspective on the situation. They're captive to His revelation. They cannot escape from it. They are forced against their will to be messengers of God. And yet there's no indication that they repent. And there's no indication that Saul repents when he hears that that has happened. I think you're getting a little bit of a feel for why I've called this sermon the irrationality of sin. The fourth gracious warning is yet another connection of David to Samuel, Ramah, and Naoth in verse 22. Verse 22 says, Then he also went to Ramah and came to the great well that is at Seku. So he asked and said, Where are Samuel and David? And someone said, Indeed, they are at Naoth in Ramah. Now this is a reminder that David was with Samuel at Naoth and Ramah. Now that could have gotten Saul's guilt going. Just too coincidental to be coincidental, right? 
but it doesn't phase him. It doesn't phase him at all. It makes Saul even more determined to, t- to catch David. But really, is this any different than pastors who have destroyed their families by going to a prostitute? You've probably seen those examples in the news. It's, it's no different at all. And the outcome of both is just as bad. Now, the fifth gracious warning comes from God in verse 23. So he went there to Nioth in Ramah, Then the Spirit of God was upon him also, and he went on and prophesied until he came to Nioth in Ramah. So God overwhelmed Saul. He forced uh, Saul himself to repeat God's words that he had given to the prophets. You know, it's sort of like uh, punishment. I don't know if you guys were ever punished with this uh, when you were in school, where you had to write on the blackboard a hundred times, I will not be an idiot, or whatever it is they made you write. I will not resist God by fighting against David. I will not resist God by fighting against David. Well, we don't know what, he, what it was he said, but it could not have been good news for Saul because this is prophecy about this situation. He's forcing him to prophesy. And this is one of the reasons why I say to you parents, if you do not fall on your knees before God on behalf of your children... If you do not cry out to him for grace on their behalf, if all you focus on is the outward, all you focus is on, okay, we got to go to church, we got to read, we got to memorize, and you got some outward behaviors, your children could grow up to still abandon the faith. They could. We have got to be on our knees before God. We cannot change their hearts. All we can do is deal with the outward behavior and point to their hearts and point their hearts to God, but it is God alone who can change our children's hearts. Now, praise God, he's promised to do so. So even from the womb, we can have these hopes that God is going to be sanctifying them, causing them to grow. But even believers can have a veil over their eyes where they're blinded to their sins. And so we've got to cry out to the Lord. The sixth warning that comes from God to Saul is given in the first part of verse 24. Now, this is very strange. It says, He also stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in like manner, and laid down naked all that day and all that night. What's going on here? Well, in chapter 18, verse 4, Jonathan voluntarily stripped off his clothes and exchanged them with David. And that was basically Jonathan's symbolic expression, I want you to be the crown prince. I don't want to be the crown prince. I know God has called you to this, and these clothes are not clothes that I want to wear. I'm giving them to you. Now here, Saul does not have that kind of humility. Instead, what's happening is God forces Saul to take off these clothes. He gives abject shame and humility to Saul. This is about as obvious as you can get. When Saul's finished prophesying, about 24 hours of prophesying, uh, nonstop, he must have been worn out in his vocal cords, and he realizes, yikes, uh, I don't have any clothes on. He quickly puts his clothes on. He must have asked himself, why in the world would God have me do this? And I think the answer should have been obvious to him. God is saying, step down from the throne, Saul. You're disqualified for office. David is the rightful heir. And it is such an obvious rejection of Saul's kingship by God that it's amazing that he does not repent. But this is why Scripture calls our sin a mystery. It's a mystery that we would engage in these sins. There's a mystery about the the depth of our self-deception, and there's a mystery about the power that sin can have over us if we allow it reign. 
We don't have to allow it rain, but if we allow it rain. The last warning is given in the last sentence of verse 24. Therefore they say, is Saul also among the prophets? Now this is an amazing contrast with the first time that the Spirit of God came upon Saul in chapter 10. Uh, In chapter 10, Saul was humble, he was given a new heart, he gladly spoke God's words, and so the people, after they see him prophesying in chapter 10, they, they say this, is Saul also among the prophets? Now that phrase is ambiguous, the indication is, well, he's prophesying, is he a prophet? They're not sure, they're not certain of the answer to that, but commentators point out the way the Hebrew is constructed in this passage, chapter 19, it is very obvious that the people are questioning. He's got a reputation of possibly being a prophet, but they're saying, how could he be a prophet? Prophets don't act like this. Prophets don't go crazy. You know, they're not out of control. In fact, the Hebrew word here is he's in a frenzy. And so they don't have a frenzy. They're they're not going to strip off their clothes and be naked. They're not going to engage in these kinds of behaviors. And because the opinion is clearly supposed to be that Saul is not a prophet, There are many commentators who say that the Spirit of God who rushed upon Saul must have been the the evil spirit from the Lord. And it's a possible interpretation. Here are their reasons. They say, first of all, the Hebrew for Spirit of God here is identical to the Hebrew of chapter 16, verse 23, where it says, whenever the Spirit from God, you can translate it from God or of God, Whenever the Spirit from God would come upon Saul, David would play and the Spirit would leave. Okay, the context indicates clearly there it had to have been the evil spirit that was being cast out of him when, uh, when David played. So it can be translated either Spirit from God or of God. Second, the other places where the phrase came upon is used, it always refers to the evil spirit coming upon Saul. Chapter 16, verse 16, verse 23, chapter 19, verse 9. Third, one of the rules of genuine prophecy is that the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. In other words, they're not going to go crazy and be out of control. No, they're in total control of their faculties. And like 1 Corinthians 14 says, they can wait. You know, if somebody else is prophesying, they just wait to take their turn to prophesy. They are in full control of their prophetic function. And uh, it's really a a sign of a false prophet that they're out of control. And yet the literal Hebrew of verse 23 says, Saul fell into a prophetic frenzy. Fourth, the answer to the question, is Saul also among the prophets, is intended to be answered in the negative in the Hebrew. It's like saying, how can Saul claim to be a prophet when he's acting like this? This is definitely not the function of a true prophet of God. So the upshot of that particular interpretation is that there was false prophesying competing with the true prophesying of this school of prophets uh, and Samuel. Now, that's an intriguing approach to the passage. It definitely solves some problems that people have puzzled over for years. On this interpretation, they say there's different kinds of prophecy, different sources of the prophecy, different methods, different accompanying signs. And so five of my translations in my office put a small s spirit from God to make it clear they're they're thinking it's the evil spirit from God. Now, my response is twofold. Even if Tsumura and other commentators are correct and it was the evil spirit who was doing these things, the conclusion of this sermon is still the same. 
Okay, it's not going to affect what our application of this sermon is going to be. God was sovereign over that evil spirit. We've seen that already in the past, haven't we? And he was forcing then that spirit to do exactly what he uh, wanted him to do. But there are good reasons why the vast majority of translations make this a capital S Spirit of God. In my library, I have 18 translations that do so, and I myself tend to lean in that direction. I'm not dogmatic on this. I tend to lean in that direction. Now, if the second interpretation is, is, is correct, then the bizarre behavior that is not normal, it is not normal for prophets, true prophets, to do this, this is a sign of God's rejection of Saul as a prophet, okay? And what these commentators say is, first of all, you've got to distinguish between prophesying and the office of a prophet. Just because you prophesy does not mean you have the office of a prophet. Let me give you some examples. Balaam's donkey prophesied, (laughs) but she was not a prophet of God, right? Balaam himself prophesied by the Spirit of God even though he was a false prophet and the Scripture says he was unregenerate. So even an unregenerate man can prophesy by God, but he was clearly not a prophet of God. Caiaphas, the high priest, hated Jesus, crucified Jesus, tried Jesus, had him whipped, and yet it says in John chapter 11, verse 51, that God's Spirit himself caused Caiaphas to prophesy true prophecy. Let me read that for you. It says, now he gives the prophecy and then it says, now this he did not say on his own. This is not Caiaphas speaking. He did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for that nation. So even an unbeliever can prophesy. So just because a person prophesied by God's Spirit does not make the person a prophet. Second thing that they would point out is that the language of the Hebrew here makes it appear that this is an attack on the messengers and it is an attack upon Saul. There's two word, there's the same word that's repeated two times with the second one having a form of the Hebrew that really intensifies it. So it's almost like, yeah, he came upon him, but it's coming upon him to overwhelm him. It's like coming upon a person just like a soldier would come upon a person. So it makes sense that God would not operate with Saul the same way he would with a friend or the same way that he would with a true prophet of God. He's forcing Saul to prophesy against his will. The third thing I would say is that Isaiah 44 verse 5 explicitly says that God sometimes turns the, uh, the, 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 the prophecies of false prophets into foolishness, turns their wisdom into foolishness, and it says that he drives them mad. It's God himself driving them mad. So God can do that with, with people. It's a sign that he's not a true prophet, even though God forces him to speak. So anyway, those I wanted to give you both interpretations. Either way you go, It should not be a passage that you use to justify the, what's it called, the laughter movement that you see up in Toronto where people are just totally out of control. They're slithering like snakes on the ground or barking like dogs or crowing like roosters or howling like hyenas or some of them are just comatose. They they just are unconscious for, you know, five hours. That is not a function and that does not function the way God says prophets function. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 indicate when God gave prophecy, it always heightened their rationality. It never diminished their rationality. It was a function of the demonic to diminish the rationality or of a judgment from God. 
God himself can say, I'm going to put a veil on your eyes so that you cannot see because this is part of my judgment. Now, of course, God does not want us wagging our finger at Saul and saying, wow, I'm shocked, Saul. What God wants us to do is look inside and see if we are on the same slippery slope downhill that Saul was. Just, just, just think about some of the things here. Do we ignore God's warnings? Do we have willful ignorance? Say, I, I, don't, I don't even want to read the Bible, what the Bible has to say about that subject. That's not something I'm going to think about. Willful ignorance. Do we persist in rebellion even when we know we are wrong? If you do any of those things, you have all the potential to become a Saul eventually. You have everything in place that can make you into a Saul. We need to overcome that inner heart of unbelief before it overcomes us. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but point two says that it is more than simply ignoring God's warnings. It is ignoring the consequences of sin as well. And the consequences are just going to be enormous. Let's quickly look at them. In verse 18, Saul loses his best military man. This is the guy who's been winning all of his battles for him. I've known bosses who have fired their best employee. You know, in one case, a salesperson. Uh, who's just brought in all kinds of money, and he didn't sell, uh, fire him because he was a bad employee or he talked back or anything. Fired him because he's jealous. He f- probably felt insecure, probably felt threatened by this guy. It's weird, but people will make choices that are self-destructive because of their sin nature. The next thing that he loses is his reputation. Now, in verse 18, David flees to Samuel, and he tells Samuel everything that Saul has been doing to him. Previous to this, it seems that David's pretty much kept his mouth shut. He's trying to be loyal, doing the best he can to serve Saul. But at this point, Saul's behavior forces David's hand. He has to say what's going on. And as news of this gets out, uh, what becomes uh, more widespread is that his reputation becomes lost this is what samuel said be sure your sins will find you out since i've gotten into the ministry i have seen one pastor after another falling into various kinds of sin uh one you know actually several into adultery and one guy into stealing a massive amount of money it's just it's a weird weird thing their ignoring of god's warnings has led them to ignore the consequences of sin. In this case, losing their office as well as uh, losing their reputation. Now, on a lesser scale, all of us do this every time we give in to sin. It's important that we think through, what am I losing when I sin? What am I losing? In verses 18 and 19, we see that Saul lost wise counsel. Now, he already had the, the wise counsel of Saul, Samuel that he lost, But here he loses the wise counsel of David. David was willing to tell Saul what needed to be said, telling him the truth. But um, he gets in trouble for doing that. And from here on out, the population realizes, you know what? It's not really safe to tell Saul the truth, what he needs to hear. We're going to tell him what he wants to hear. Take a look at verse 19. Now it was told Saul, saying, Take note, David is at Nioth in Ramah. Now what do these guys have against David? I cannot imagine that they had anything against David. 
I don't think that's the point. I think the point is they know if they're going to be successful in climbing the corporate ladder with, with Saul, they've got to tell him what he wants to know. And as news of this kind of behavior spreads, what happens is Saul begins to be surrounded by people who only tell him what he wants to hear. They're users instead of true loyal friends. And he loses the loyal friends and he, he, he loses uh, the honest men. In verses 20 through 21, we see that Saul lost his ability to control others. And this is going to become more and more of a problem in upcoming chapters. Verse 23, he loses control of himself. Now, that's just a remarkable passage there. And it's a reminder to us, God can take us out anytime he chooses. You think you're invincible? No way. God can take you out with a heart attack. He can make you crazy. He can affect your body, your mind, your will, your circumstances, your money. You cannot outmaneuver God. It's absolutely impossible. Now, another way of saying this is that when we lose control of our flesh, we not only have the monster of flesh against us, we've got Satan against us, we've got the world against us, and we've got God against us, which means Romans 8.28 is no longer going to be true because we don't love God like we should. In fact, what's going to be happening is everything's going to be working toward your punishment. Your life is going to be absolutely miserable. Romans 8.31 is not going to be true either. If God is against us, who can be for us? Everything's going to begin to conspire against you. And yet, men still rebel against God. It's irrational. It doesn't make any sense. In verse 24, he lost his royal garments. We already talked about that. Uh, same verse shows he lost his dignity. And then the la uh, last sentence of that chapter shows that he lost his reputation as being a prophet. For him to persist in rebellion in the face of such losses is absolutely irrational. Brothers and sisters, every time you choose to rebel against God's word, it is just as irrational. I don't care what sin you're talking about. Just name the sin and you will find passages in Scripture that say you are stupid, absolutely stupid to engage in that sin. Let's just take the sin of holding a grudge against somebody. You're, you're bitter and you're not forgiving him. Now, if somebody asked you, do you, do you forgive him? Oh, yeah, yeah, I forgive him. But you're still bitter against him. No, you haven't forgiven him. And, and Matthew chapter 18 illustrates both points one and point two in the same order. You read through that chapter. But here is how that chapter ends. And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Now the torturers that you're being handed over to are the demons. They're the torturers. What's happening is you've given ground to these demons to have at you just like they did with Saul. Those demons will turn Romans 8.28 upside down in your life and make your life absolutely miserable. And yet, amazingly, there are some Christians who will insist that they have a right to hold a grudge against their brother or their sister or their children or their parents or their neighbor or some other person that has hurt them. They have a right, and they don't care about the irrationality of the fact that God has forgiven us of a billion dollars worth of trespasses. I'm still going to grab this guy by the collar and be bitter against him because he sinned against me $1,000 worth of trespasses. It, it's irrational. They don't care about the irrationality of the consequences of their bitterness. And there are terrible consequences. 
They don't care that Romans 8.28 will be turned upside down, giving liberty to demons to rampage against us. That bitterness that they have as a treasure in their heart is sadly so precious that they're willing to lose everything rather than give up the bitterness and forgive. It's sort of like Gollum. Uh, in your outlines, uh, given a couple pictures there, Gollum in, in Lord of the Rings. That ring was poisoning him. It was endangering him, and yet he treasures it anyway. That's what I think uh, as a picture in my mind when I see unforgiving, bitter people. They will stroke their pet sin. They call it precious, precious. <laughs> you know, they just want to hold on to that. All the while, they're miserable. Absolutely miserable. They're not going to give up that that grudge. They are not going to give up that grudge. No way. It is irrational. And if you are a golem who is holding on to that irrational sin or any other secret sin, it will take you over the precipice into the molten lava if you do not repent of it, if you do not destroy it and kill it right away, cast it away. Now, I'm not one to quote Napoleon Bonaparte much, But he made a statement that I think is very apropos in describing this passage. He said, The only conquests which are permanent and leave no regrets are our conquests over ourselves. I thought that's just a profound, uh, profound statement. Saul had learned how to conquer the, the, the Philistines, but he had never learned how to conquer his fear, his jealousy, his anger. Uh, he, he just never had learned how to deal with those things. Uh, he had learned how to control others with his behavior, but he had never learned how to control his temper and his negative thinking. We need to learn what are the biblical steps for conquering every one of our sins. Be systematic in destroying them, just as systematic as a soldier is going to be in rooting out the enemy from the land. Now, Rarely did Saul see his sin or regret of his sin. Now, he does regret of his sin. He repents of it in chapter 24. He repents of it again in chapter 26, but it's only because he's had a near-death experience. And so Saul stands as a warning to everybody who thinks, yeah, I've got a lot of problems, but all the problems are their fault and their fault and their fault. All they can see is the problems out there. They're never looking at their own heart. Okay, he stands as a warning when you do that. I really see this as the final test from God that would give Saul one more opportunity to recognize his sin, that fighting against David is fighting against God, just say, okay, Lord, I give up. I'm going to step down from being a king. He didn't do it. He didn't do it. Now, our natural mind might object, well, sure, Saul lost some things, but he still has the kingdom. He's got the power. He's got far more enjoyment of life than David does. Oh, really? He's got enjoyment of life. Saul is happy. And they might say, well, he's maybe not totally happy. He's got some, but he's a lot happier than David is. I mean, think about David. He's on the run. Is that a blessing from the Lord? I mean, David has lost everything by being faithful to the Lord. David has lost his position, as I mentioned last week. He's lost a favor with Saul. He's lost his wife. He's lost all his earthly possessions. He has lost even his best friend in the next chapter. How is that a blessing from the Lord? I think doing the sinful thing is a little bit easier than doing the, uh, the, the, the faithful thing. See, this is the way our mind can rationalize with our sin. We think it's really not that bad considering the alternatives. But if the only perspective you have in analyzing a decision that you are going to make is an earthly perspective, yeah, Saul's decision 
might make more sense than David's decision did. David's decision from one perspective seems a little bit irrational. David, just compromise a little bit. Come on, don't be so legalistic. You're going to get along uh, with other people and, uh, you, you know, what, what's the expression, Rodney? Get, get along to get along? What's that? Go along to get along. Yeah, that's exactly what they're probably thinking. You see, the wisdom of God is foolishness with man. David's willingness to suffer loss in order to say, stay faithful may seem irrational, but it is not. It is wisdom that flows from faith. Why was David running to Ramah? He ran to Ramah because he was running to God. He ran to Ramah because he was running to friends who knew God. He basked in God's revelation. He was absolutely being saturated in God's revelation during that time. Here is a community of prophets who knew what it meant to, to press into the heart of God. And David learns a lot during his stay there. In fact, this unleashes a whole flurry of prophetic revelation. He's maybe only written two or three psalms to this point, but there's a whole flurry of prophetic revelation after being there. And so there's a sense in which his being in Ramah was an incredible blessing from the Lord. It may seem like it's a judgment, but it's a blessing from the Lord, a hidden blessing. Now, there's a lot more that could be said about David's stay in Nioth Ramah, but the chief lesson is that if you have God's favor, you have everything. If you've got God's presence, you have everything. Remember earlier we saw that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and it says the Lord was with David. So he has God's presence. Romans 8 ends by talking about every imaginable kind of earthly loss and opposition and persecution, and yet it says that none of those things can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. In fact, we're more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. And our flesh will object, yeah, 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 but, but, but soul has the kingdom. And Christ's response is, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? And what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You see, God is going to give David the kingdom and riches and all kinds of things in the future, but he strips all of those things away from David right now because he wants him to learn to value God above everything else. He wants him to learn that God is his chief treasure. And when we value God above everything else on earth, God will trust us with more and more and more things of life. Here's the way Paul worded it. He says, when you have God, you have everything. He says this, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Now, it takes faith to believe that. But David was walking by faith, and as he continued to walk by faith in the upcoming chapters, God kept adding more and more and more into his life. He is not the irrational one. Saul was. Okay? And so God asks you this morning, which behavior will you imitate? Will you imitate the irrational behavior of Saul? By holding on to your sin, or will you imitate the rational embracing of God's will, radically embracing His will that David did? The famous martyr Jim Elliot said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's a great statement. And actually, I found out he got it from uh, Philip Henry, a Puritan earlier in life. But he said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. Why not give away what you cannot keep? 
to gain what you cannot lose. Now that seems irrational to the world, but it is the height of rationality. And it is sin, rebellion, and uh, unbelief that is the height of irrationality. Why? Because it's going to end you in hell, in hellfire for all of eternity. It is irrational, absolutely irrational. The call of the Scripture is to be rational, to wake up, to believe and live out the gospel. And when we do that, we can say with Paul, if God be for us, who can be against us? Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank and bless you that your Holy Spirit opens up our eyes not only to understand the Scripture, but to understand our hearts. The heart is deceitful, deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? We recognize we cannot understand even our own hearts. We are so self-deceived at times. But we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. And we ask that you would open up our eyes. If there are any people here who have veils upon their fa uh, faces where they cannot see, they cannot see straight, Father, take away those veils and help us to see life as you see it. Help us to see sin as you see it. Help us to look at your holiness as you see it, to see the beauty of holiness instead of seeing it as something that robs us of our pleasures. No, Father, may we cast away humanistic, self-centered pleasures and we, may we find our chief pleasure in you, delighting ourselves with delight that is indescribable and full of glory. Father, bless this people with rational Christianity that follows hard after you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.